the first three verses of chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is probably the most influential verse in the book of Acts for me and, and also for our church. In that verse, Jesus gives the church its marching orders. He says to his disciples, and by way of consequence, he says to us in that verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But the passage that has most influenced how I understand the role of the New Testament church in general and the role of New Branch in particular are these first three verses of Acts 13. It's here where we see that the New Testament church is to be a sending church. A church that is ready and willing to raise up and send out its very best For the sake of kingdom work beyond its four walls and beyond the scope of its own reach. Since day one, it has been the vision of our church to be a sending church. Like the Antioch church that we see here in these verses. And so let's read this morning about this church in Antioch and seek to understand how God would have us be as a church, New Testament church today, who he would have us be and what he would have us do. Let's read God's word, Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the honor and the privilege it's been this morning to to gather together as a church family to worship you. Father, we thank you for the songs that we've sung, the words that we've read from your word to bring us before the throne, to see how needy we are as sinners for mercy and how undeserving we are of the grace that you extend to us in Christ. And in the midst of realizing that need, you show us that you have made provision for that need. You have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life we never could, achieving a righteousness that we must have if we are to stand before you. And dying in our place on a cross so that those who trust in Christ alone, that their sins may be covered over by the blood of your Son, And that his righteousness may be credited to our account as our own. So that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We might be able to stand before you. Forgiven. Redeemed. And reconciled. Father we pray for those who are among us. Those within earshot of my voice. 
that have never come to faith in Christ. Maybe they've played church their whole life. Maybe they've been very active and, and, and very religious, but they have never come to the point of recognizing their lost condition apart from you and trusted in Jesus Christ alone, his death and resurrection as their only hope to be rescued from what they and we all deserve. Father, we pray that they would come to grips with the reality of their hopeless predicament and that they would see Jesus as their only hope and trust in him alone this morning, being likewise redeemed and forgiven like the rest of us. But Father, for those of us who know you by faith in Christ, we know that you have placed a call in our life and you have placed a call on this church to be ready and willing to raise up and send out our very best so that the work which you did in us might not stop with us, but extend beyond us. So Father, I pray that you would do a work in us as we look at this little church, this new little church in Antioch. And Father, that we might seek to follow it as a, as a pattern for us, as a model for us, as we seek to be faithful to be ascending church as well. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. In order for us to get a better understanding of what is happening here in Acts, we need to see where this passage falls within the broader narrative of the book of Acts. As we mentioned at the outset, this all stems from Jesus' marching orders that were given to the church in verse 8 of chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what begins to happen right after that. The first thing that happens is that, is that they are clothed with power from on high. As they are empowered with the Holy Spirit there at Pentecost. And then being empowered by that Holy Spirit, the mission begins. And they began proclaiming that good news. They began being witnesses of Jesus there in Jerusalem. They began proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in Jerusalem. And God gives them fruit. And thousands upon thousands of people profess faith in Jesus Christ. And the church begins to grow. But not everyone is happy about it. In particular, the Jews then in, there in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders in particular, who just weeks prior had put Jesus to death at Calvary. They weren't happy about the growth of these followers of Jesus at all. And so they began to harass and persecute this fledgling church there in Jerusalem. The apostle Peter gets thrown in jail twice. And he gets released twice, once because they don't know what to charge him with, and once because an angel opens the doors. But then they arrest Stephen, a young deacon and evangelist. And Stephen, during his trial before the high priest, he boldly and courageously preaches an unadulterated gospel. And the Jews who were there in Jerusalem so hated Stephen for what he was saying that they stoned him to death. 
We're told in the opening verses of chapter 8 that then, as a result of this, a great persecution broke out against the church. And that as a result of that persecution, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem were scattered all throughout Judea and Samaria. But we're told something else there in the opening verses of chapter 8. We're told that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They weren't silenced by the persecution. They were scattered, but they weren't silenced. They continued to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The story of their scattering is picked up again a few chapters later at the midway point of chapter 11 that Tyler preached on just a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Luke writes, beginning in verse 19 of that chapter, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. God had used the persecution of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, as the means to get the gospel out of Jerusalem and to this Gentile city called Antioch. And we were told in that passage that the apostles down in Jerusalem heard about what was happening up there, heard that people were coming to faith in Jesus. So they sent Barnabas up to them. Barnabas grabbed Saul from Tarsus and brought him up to Antioch as well. And for a whole year, they discipled these young believers in Christ. And we were told that, that it was there in Antioch that they were first called Christians. A church had been planted in Antioch. Not just planted, but discipled and equipped and established. But now what would they do? So much had been sacrificed to get the gospel to Antioch. The apostles had been imprisoned and in some cases beaten. Stephen had been martyred, stoned to death. And the, the folks in that church had to flee from Jerusalem, had to flee from their homes and their businesses under threat of death. And now finally the gospel had come to Antioch. The church had been established. They were now an established church. They, they, they were young, but the gospel had taken root, and they were now an established church. So what were they going to do now? We have every reason to believe that they probably began gathering together on a weekly basis to worship the Lord and to hear the word preached to them, and to observe the ordinances of Lord's Supper as we will later today, and baptism. I believe that it's 
highly likely that they also continued and were faithful in evangelism and discipleship. They continued to proclaim the gospel to the lost in their community. And as they came to faith, they discipled them just as Barnabas and Saul had discipled them and modeled for them how one is to be discipled. They maintained that commitment. We see from our text this morning, they also established leaders in the church. We're told in verse 1, that there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now we're not told here explicitly how they were identified as leaders in this church, but I think that because we're given here how Barnabas and Saul were identified as missionaries and sent out, I think it's reasonable to assume that perhaps a similar process was used to identify these leaders as well. They're not identified here for us as pastors and elders, but again, like we did in Acts 6, I think we can see these church leaders as precursors of those who would serve in the office of elder. And if you'll see there, there's a diversity in this group of prophets and teachers that hints at the great assembly of the redeemed of the ages who will one day gather around the throne and around the Lamb, a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and race. Who's there? Barnabas. He was a Levite from the tribe of Levi from Cyprus, which means that he was an ethnic Jew. Simeon, who is called Niger, Niger being a Latin word which means dark or black. And so most scholars believe that he was a black African. Lucius of Cyrene was definitely North African. Cyrene is in modern day Libya. Menaean, who we're told was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was the son of Herod the Great. And so he was a Gentile. And then Saul, Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia, that we know was a Jew, not just a Jew, but a Pharisee, but also a Roman citizen. So even in the makeup of the leadership of this church, we, we see a, a shadow of the great harvest of souls that would come one day through this gospel getting out to the ends of the earth, a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and race. But the point is, this was now an established church. They had identified and called leaders. They had regular church services. We're told in verse 2 that the setting in which the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that he was calling them to, the setting of the Holy Spirit doing that was not the gathering of the leaders, but was the gathering of the church. It was the gathered church, which is the setting in which the Holy Spirit called them out. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And we know that if a New Testament church is fasting, they're also praying. And so they had church services. They were a worshiping community. Things were going well in Antioch. They were a growing, healthy, thriving church with solid leadership and a bright future. So what happened to them? What happened next? Verse 2. 
while they, that is the church, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We should note here that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that initiates the call to mission. The Holy Spirit spoke to the gathered church as they were worshiping and praying. He didn't just speak to the leaders. He didn't just speak to those who were called to be sent. He spoke to the entire gathered church in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit identifies those whom he had already called, and then he tells the church to set them apart for that work. And so see how it works. The Holy Spirit first calls them to the work, and then he tells the gathered church to set them apart for that work. Now, I don't think that we should try to fill in the gaps of what we don't know about how that happened. We shouldn't concern ourselves with the particulars of how the Holy Spirit spoke to that gathered church or how the church discerned what the Holy Spirit was saying to them. Luke simply tells us that the Holy Spirit said, again, to the gathered church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. And the church, of course, knew exactly what the Holy Spirit meant because they immediately obey. Verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the Holy Spirit initiates the call to missions and it is the responsibility and job of the church, the gathering of, the, of God's people, to respond to the Holy Spirit's call to mission. We see here that they took this seriously, which is why they had a season of fasting and prayer before laying their hands on them. And then they obediently and prayerfully commissioned them. That, that, that's what laying their hands on them signified. As they laid their hands on them, they were commissioning them as being sent away as part of them. They all couldn't go. And so Barnabas and Saul were going as their representatives. In reality, the entire church of Antioch was going on a missionary journey. The entire church was going on the journey. But it was only Barnabas and Saul who would actually be physically leaving them. But the whole church was going. That was what was being symbolized in their laying on of the hands and commissioning these two. And then they sent them off. And that's the beginning of Paul's great missionary journeys that will take us the bulk of the remainder of the book of Acts for us to cover beginning just next week. But I want to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking through two critical questions. Number one, what did it take for that church to be willing to send them off? And number two, what does that mean for the church today? What did it take for that Antioch church to be willing to send off Barnabas and Saul? What did it take of them? Three things, I think. First, 
They had to be a healthy and faithful church. God wasn't going to multiply a church that was unhealthy, unfaithful to its mission, or divided. And all the stuff that we've already mentioned about the Antioch church served to make it the kind of church that God wanted to multiply and replicate all throughout the Gentile world. And so what are some of the healthy and faithful qualities of this Antioch church? Well, as we mentioned, they had a focus on both evangelism and discipleship. It wasn't one or the other, it was both and. They continued to hold out the gospel to the people in Antioch. It's how the church was started as we saw in chapter 11. And when they became established, I don't think they stopped. They continued to hold out the gospel to the lost in their community. And when the lost came to faith, they discipled them just as Barnabas and Saul had spent that year discipling them. So they maintained a, a, a focus and a commitment on both evangelism and discipleship. Secondly, they continued to be committed to gathering together corporately, to worship, to pray, to hear the word preached and taught by these, uh, past, these prophets and teachers. They didn't neglect the gathering together of the saints. Instead, they saw that as a critical component of their identity of who they were as the church. Thirdly, they identified and called out leaders from among them and allowed them to operate within their giftedness and within their office. Fourth, they were spiritually attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Again, we don't know exactly how this church heard the Holy Spirit speak to them, but they did. And I think at least it says something about their spiritual maturity and their commitment to being devoted to, to being in communion with God and communing with God so that when God spoke to them, they would recognize His voice. They were a healthy, faithful, unified, and spiritually mature church. This is the kind of church that God wants to multiply and replicate. Secondly, what it take for them to be willing to send them off is that they had to be a generous church. We've already seen their generosity back in chapter 11 financially. When they hear about the famine that's going to happen down in Judea, they take up a collection and they give of their financial resources to help the suffering church in Jerusalem. But now that generosity was needed not just with money, but with people. The Holy Spirit was asking them to send off their very best. Barnabas was their greatest encourager. He was probably the most beloved of the shepherds in that church. Saul was the greatest preacher, the greatest theologian. Imagine having the Apostle Paul to deliver in the pulpit week in and week out. This is who the Holy Spirit wanted them to send away. 
You know, I was thinking about this. I, I, I think there were probably some in that church that may have said, uh, can we send Lucius of Cyrene instead? How about Menaean? He's got some really good political connections, and that would be a good idea. Not Barnabas and Saul. You see, sending anyone from them would have cost something. But sending these guys cost a lot. This would require significant sacrifice from the church at Antioch. And not just sacrifice. It would involve significant change. And nobody likes change. And perhaps there was no small amount of fear on those who were left behind. What's going to happen now? Now that these guys are gone. What would sending Barnabas and Saul mean for the church at Antioch? It would mean sacrifice. It would mean change. And it would mean the prospect of facing the the scary and unknown world of church life without them. And so in order for them to be willing to let them go and be generous with their people, this church at Antioch had to come to the realization that their people weren't their people. They were God's. And that their church wasn't their church. It was God's. And so just as we are called upon to to steward our family's resources because they're not ours, they're God's, so the church must steward its resources, both financially and people, because they are God's resources, because it's God's church, not ours. And so the Antioch church had to hold their people with an open hand. So that when God said, I'm sending them out, they'd be willing to let them go. They had to be a healthy, faithful church. So that they'd be the kind of church that God would want to replicate. They had to be a a generous church that was willing to send out their very best. And then thirdly, they had to be a church that was sold out to the mission. They had to see... That, that their church itself was not the fulfillment of Jesus' marching orders. But rather, their church was a link in the chain to continuing to fulfill those marching orders. While some back in Jerusalem probably thought that Antioch was the ends of the earth, those who lived in Antioch knew that the mission field extended far beyond them. And if the gospel was going to go far beyond them, they had to see themselves as a launching pad for sending folks out from them. And in the end, that's what we know and and that's what we think about when we think about the church at Antioch. A church that recognized that their role in this mission is to be a a launching pad for, for raising up and sending out workers to the work of the gospel, both near and far. They saw themselves as a home base for missions, whether it's close by or far away, where folks would come to faith in Jesus Christ 
because they had a continued focus on evangelism. They had a continued focus on holding out the gospel to those in Antioch and those in their community. And when they came to faith in Christ, they had a commitment to disciple them and pour into them and equip them so that they would be sent out from them. And as with any church, in a sense, all of the believers in the Antioch church were sent. They were all sent. Some of those who were sent still lived in Antioch and still kept their membership at the church at Antioch. They were sent to their friends, neighbors, and co-workers in that city. But some among them were sent beyond them that they were called and set apart by the holy spirit to be sent away and sent off to do that gospel work in faraway lands but if this church had not been sold out to this mission they never would have sent barnabas and saul and oh how different our world would have been without them the churches of ephesus the region of Galatia, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica, and all the rest owe their very existence to the generosity and missional fervency of the people in this little church in Antioch. In many ways, church, we too today in our church, we stand in a long line of churches who can all look back and be thankful that God chose to use a little church like this in Antioch as the spark to ignite a gospel bonfire that would take the world by storm. So that's what it took. That's what it took for for this church in Antioch to be willing to send away their very best. But now what does this mean for the church today in general? And what does this mean for us, for New Branch in particular? Well, first, let me just say this. This does not mean, this does not mean that this verse is saying that you must vote yes on the church planting plan that we're going to vote on at the end of the service. Please hear me on that. That's not what this text is saying. This is not something that I planned out. Ask Susan. I'm not that good of a planner. This isn't even the text that we originally were going to preach on today, and we weren't even going to vote originally on this day. I'm not that good of a planner. But providentially, we're talking about the church at Antioch on the day that we're voting to plant a new church. If you're looking for someone to blame, blame someone that's better at planning than me. But in all seriousness, this text does not say in any way, shape, or form, nor does it infer that our next step is to plant a church in Jackson County. It's not what it says. And that's not what I mean to infer from it. But just because that, it doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything for us today. And so what does that mean for us? Three things. Number one, It means that we should seek to be the kind of church that God would desire to replicate, whether it's here or on the other side of the globe. 
Which means that we too, like the church of Antioch, we should be focused and committed and remain focused and committed on evangelism and discipleship. If God does want us to plant a church in Jackson County and and send a number of families, 20 families or whatever, away from us, I'm convinced that part of the reason is so that we would be compelled to reach our friends, neighbors, and coworkers with the gospel, and that we would replenish those 20 families, not with sheep swapping from other local churches, but from people, lost people, who have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and have become found people by God's grace. And to be fair, if God doesn't want us to plant next, instead he wants us to build or expand or whatever, that likewise must be for the purpose of making room for more people to hear and respond to the gospel. The aim is the marching orders of Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that begins outside these doors, and it ends at the ends of the earth. Listen, whether we are here in Gwinnett County or there in Jackson County, there are hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of lost people all around us, made in the image of God, who are headed for a Christless eternity. And Jesus whispers to us, be my witnesses to them. Be my witnesses to them. We need to be focused on and committed to holding out the gospel to our community. But we also need to be focused on discipling believers and equipping believers so that they might be faithful sent believers. Jesus said, go and make disciples, not just converts. We're to make disciples who make disciples, which means that we are to make disciple makers. The church of Jesus Christ is to be an incubator where disciple makers are made. If we're going to be the kind of church that that sends disciple makers out, then we need to be an incubator where disciple makers are made. Our base base groups need to be little mini incubators where everyone in that base group is growing in their faith and growing to help someone else grow in their faith. We need to be learning the fundamentals of our faith, and then we need to go, be going deep in learning the fundamentals of our faith, and we need to be growing and being faithful to what our common faith requires of us. And we need to be fighting against indwelling sin together and helping one another to mortify the flesh and grow in our pursuit of godliness. And not only do we need to maintain a focus on both evangelism and discipleship, but we need to be a healthy and faithful church in all these other areas as well. As the church in Antioch was faithful in stewarding their financial resources, we should as well continue to pay down our debt and steward our resources wisely so we're ready to act when God calls on us to. We need to have qualified leaders and more qualified leaders. So that when God in his divine wisdom sends some leaders away from us, we have others who are ready to step up and fill the gap. We need to have unity in the gospel. And we need to have unity in our common union in Christ. As fellow members of this church, we are 
brothers and sisters in Christ. We are first and foremost united to Christ by faith. And because of our common union with Him by faith, we are united to one another in a real and tangible way. And we ought to preserve that unity with fierce determination because to allow division in the body of Christ is in a sense to be okay with dividing Christ. Fighting together to be a faithful, healthy, unified church makes us the kind of church that God would desire to replicate near and far. Secondly, second thing this passage means for us today is that we should hold our resources with an open hand. That includes our finances, that includes our building, and that includes our people. Because our money is not our money, our building is not our building, and our people are not our people. They're God's. We're not owners. We're managers. We're managers who are called to steward God's resources for His kingdom purposes. And when God calls on us to send, whether it's sending 20 families to Jackson County or sending a couple of families to Africa or Southeast Asia or Europe or Boston or Utah or wherever, we need to hold our people with an open hand. So when the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me those that I've called to this task, we're willing to let them go. And just as with the Antioch church here, when he sends people away from us, there will be a cost. It'll require sacrifice. It will mean change. It'll mean facing the prospect of a scary and unknown world of life at New Branch without them. But that's the job of those who are called to send. And we can trust that God will never leave us or forsake us just as he will never leave or forsake those whom we send. And then finally, this passage means for us that we should be sold out to the mission. We know that God is not just about building this church. He's about building his kingdom. And so if we're going to be the kind of church that is a sending church like the Antioch church, then we need to adopt a kingdom focus a kingdom mentality. The marching orders of Jesus didn't end at Antioch, and they don't end with us. Antioch was not the ends of the earth. Neither is Gwinnett County. Neither is Jackson County, by the way. We are, like the church at Antioch, simply another link in the chain of taking the gospel to the nations. We've said it before, missions is not a ministry of the church, it is the ministry of the church. Missions is not something that just pastors and missionaries do, it's something that we all do together. And whether God is calling us to plant a church in Jackson County or not, this I know for certain, we are to be a launch pad for sending out gospel workers to do gospel ministry near and far. And so if that's the case, then each of us has a role. We're either senders 
or we are the sent. And again, in a very real sense, we're all sent. We're all sent as believers out these doors to take the gospel to our lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers. But some of those at Antioch were set apart to be sent away and sent off. And God is going to send away some from among us. And I don't just mean to a church plant. If that happens, then yes, some from among us will be sent off. But even if that doesn't happen, it is my prayer, and it's, I hope that it's your prayer too, that God would continue to set apart some from among us, to be sent out from us, to continue the work of taking the gospel to the nations, so that by God's grace and in His timing, it gets to the ends of the earth one day. That's the mission, and we can't rest until it's done. There are hundreds of thousands of lost people within a 20-minute drive of this church, and there are millions, dare I say billions, of lost people beyond that 20-minute drive. Could the Holy Spirit be calling you to be set apart and sent from us to take the gospel to them. Young person, I want you to, I want you to hear me. And the older I get with each year, <laughs> the, 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 those who are contained in the word young person gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There is nothing more noble to consider giving your life to than to invest your life in taking the gospel to the nations. Nothing. And if God is calling you, or you even think that maybe, perhaps, maybe God is calling you to be sent out from us, I want you to know that it is our desire as a church to come alongside you and to walk with you and to, to equip you and to support you and if through this process we affirm together that yes, the Holy Spirit is calling you to this task, then we will prayerfully, by God's grace, set you apart for that task as the Antioch church did with Barnabas and Saul. And we will lay our hands on you, commissioning you as part of us, and we will send you off, and we will support you and we will pray for you, and we will cheer you on as you step out in faith on your missionary journey. Church, we're all in this together. And it's one or the other for every single one of us. He's either calling you to be sent, or he's calling you to be a sender. Which is it for you? And when is the last time you asked him? Lord, which is it for me? Are you calling me to send or are you calling me to go? Let's pray. Father, as we consider what happened in that church, it just makes sense 
as we see your thumbprint across the pages of the book of Acts. You sent your son to be the perfect sacrifice, to fix the problem, to pay the price, to achieve the righteousness we never could. And when he breathed his last on the cross, it was finished. He went to the grave and rose three days later, proving that he had defeated sin and death. All that remained was to get the word out. And in your sovereign grace and wisdom, your chosen means was the church. And so your son said, wait in Jerusalem for the the power of the Spirit and then go be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. And your church was faithful. Your church sacrificed greatly. Your church was persecuted greatly. It was harassed and imprisoned. But you were at work in all of that, using even that as the means to get the gospel out to a place like Antioch that you would tap and send out gospel workers to light a gospel bonfire that would literally change the world. Father, we don't want to read our situation into this, but we do know that we want to be that kind of church. A church that is faithful, that is healthy, that is obedient to the task that you've called us to, that we would be the kind of church that you would desire to replicate. We want to be the kind of church, Lord, that that holds our people and our resources with an open hand, not a tight grip, knowing that they belong to you, not us, that we're simply the managers, the stewards called upon to, to steward them for your kingdom purposes. Lord, whatever it is that you're asking of us to to let go of, give us the faith and trust in you to be able to do that and trust you that you're going to build your church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. God, make us a church that is sold out to your mission, whatever that means, whatever that means for us corporately and whatever that means for every single person sitting in these chairs that we would lay a blank check before you over and over and over again and ask you, sender or goer, which is it, Lord? If you're calling me to go, give me the faith. Give me the trust in you to trust you every step of the way. And if it means to be a sender, give me the faith, give me the trust to be willing to send our very best to see your work continued wherever it is that they are sent to. Father, we lift up those among us. We know that the mission field perhaps begins with the person sitting next to us, with the person sitting behind us, with the person who lives across the street from us, in the next cubicle from us, the person that checks us out at the grocery store. Father, the mission field is all around us. And Father, there are those, I'm sure, within the the sound of my voice this morning, who have never come to faith in you. As they hear this talk about mission, Father, would you remind them that they are the aim of the mission? That you sent your son Jesus to redeem sinners like we all are. 
who don't deserve grace. We pray, Father, that you would walk them across the line of faith at this very moment. God, would you redeem a new brother, a new sister in Christ. Lead them to turn away from their sin and their self-rule and turn to Jesus Christ, your son, and his rule over their life. Grant them faith to become a child of God. And move in us as a church that we would be faithful to whatever it is that you call us to do and be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.